0: On this episode of the podcast, May 20th through 26th, 1969. Quantum Week. Quantum Week. Welcome to Quantum Week. I'm Matt. I'm Chris. Quantum Week is a show in which uh, Chris and I leap into a random week of a random year. We talk about movies and music and headlines and anything that's happening during that time period to make it unique. And today, we have a very special guest, uh, Jesse Dayton, who is an Austin-based guitar singer, songwriter, filmmaker, musician extraordinaire. Welcome to the podcast, Jesse.
1: Hey, guys. How are y'all doing? Great, Jesse. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. Where are you guys at?
0: Well, we're in New Hampshire, um, up in the north. You're in Austin, correct?
1: Yes, I'm down in uh, the little blue bubble down here where uh, there's a tiny bit of sanity and we're all trying to, uh, you know, be uh, good citizens.
0: Well, uh, one thing that we like to do is just be kind of a break from all the craziness out there, all the COVID and whatever. We try to shut that down and just talk about pop culture. And whenever we have a guest, um, we let them decide the movie and the music that we talk about. So you decided on Midnight Cowboy.
1: Right, from 1969. Yeah, uh, what a, I mean, really, uh, you know, I'm just to be, don't let my accent fool you. I've read Wuthering Heights three times.
0: (laughs) No judgment, trust me.
1: Uh, Yeah, yeah. um, But, um, you know, movies were my kind of escape, um, like they are for everyone. But I um, picked this movie because there are a lot of convoluted reasons uh, that I felt connected to this movie. Um, and Midnight Cowboy, uh, you know, came out in 69, in yeah. the, the 60s, uh, you know, a lot had happened in the country. Robert Kennedy, Jack Kennedy, Martin Luther King, uh, you know, the, uh, the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention. I mean, there was just crazy change. So I like to bring that up just so people put that in perspective of what's happening now. Our country has actually been now where it is now before, uh, and this really influx of change. And I think that uh, socially and politically that this film had a big, uh, it was received well because of that. Sure.
2: Yeah. And, and you can even see filmmaking change. So, Um, You know, in the early 60s, filmmaking was a very different style. In the late 60s, you have movies like The Night Cowboy, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, Butch Cassidy and and Sundance Kid. These movies very, very much changed how films were shot, how they were made, how they were produced and how they were even advertised and who they were going toward. Um, This movie feels... Uh, I wouldn't say it feels modern because it definitely doesn't. It feels like a, a, a movie from the 60s, but it also doesn't feel as fake or as phony as something from the 50s or early 60s does. It definitely feels like a real shift there.
1: Absolutely, you know, and thank God for Easy Rider because it got us out of those horrible sure. musicals, right? Uh, that, that all these, you know, that our mothers and fathers were, you know, some of them, at least mine, were kind of free thinking, and uh, but they they were rolling their eyes at those films, and um, you know, just to kind of jump in and into it, um, Schlesinger, the filmmaker who who made this film, and Waldo Salt, the guy who who wrote the, uh, he didn't write the book it was based on, but he wrote the screenplay. But, you know, Schlesinger was this kind of um, British macho uh, guy who was, also, who was also homosexual, who had been married for 30 years. He's a great, beautiful man. Yeah. And, uh, but because of his, because he wasn't a very effeminate guy, it probably helped him back in those days. So he showed that in this film. And I think that is a large in large due response that it's, um, yeah, it has a homoerotic kind of vibe to it with the character that John Boyd plays. And, um, yeah. Do we, yeah.
2: do we think those characters are, cause it is somewhat, uh, it's not, it's not very clear a hundred percent. Do we think both or one of them is gay?
1: Well, this is what I think. I think Joe Buck, which is john Voigt's character and yep. hey don't don't let present um don't let your the present uh John Voigt deter you from going back and watching this film uh because um John Boyd has kind of turned into a different guy personally, and kind of people go, "Ah hey, John Boyd, let me just tell you he is brilliant." He's as beautiful as a movie star as you'll ever see in any movie in this movie. And he, his character, which is coming out of big spring, Texas, which I know big, big spring, Texas. It's really out in the middle of nowhere outside of Lubbock in West Texas. In the film, Schlesinger shows his grandmother sexually abusing him. And one of her many husbands sexually abusing him and uh, these rednecks kind of all gang rape him and his girlfriend uh, on the flashback. So it, that's a very forward-thinking um, thing in terms of why people become hustlers, why they become prostitutes. and Also why he felt he had to leave. You know, like, why is this guy
2: leaving Texas and going to New York? It seems very abrupt. But then you do learn through these flashbacks. He's had this terrible life. He's had these horrible experiences. Um, that, you know, forced him out. And and you can understand why someone would want to leave his home uh, and try to start somewhere new. The crazy thing
0: about it, and one of the reasons why I love uh, John Voight in this film is how optimistic he is. Like, even at the end of the film, you see all the shit that's happened to him in his childhood through these flashbacks, and he's so optimistic when when he's leaving Texas for a better life in New York and then just gets churned, you know, churned in New York uh, gets completely abused throughout the film. And even though he's like holding his dead buddy on the bus at the right. end of the film, he's still kind of optimistic. Like you still feel that about him. It's great. I think he's beautiful. in this. Film. He's
1: really good in this. Yeah. Um, yeah, both it really, it really, uh, and, and, and even though, even though I didn't have those same experiences, I was never a hustler per se or anything like that. I do connect with leaving a small town in Texas. Sure. And, 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 and you know, when we all graduated from high school, man, regardless if your parents were wealthy or working class like mine, or you had a famous name, or we all jumped off the same diving board and I loaded up my hoopty and I drove out to LA and I started working and I, you know, I started getting gigs and, and I met some characters and I felt like the guy that just fell off the peach truck or just sure. got off off the banana boat, if you will. Um, so I really related to that character.
0: Now, do you consider this an optimistic film though? No. Cause they're so, it's so dark. It's very yeah. dark yeah. and the
2: characters are very, they're very pathetic and sad. They're sad characters. Sad. Yeah. Um, now,
1: it's hard to watch Dustin Hoffman sometimes is. because he is so dirty and filthy. Yep. And at yeah. the end of his road.
0: That's exactly the way I felt watching it. That the dirty is the exact word like this. He's so Even his teeth are all yeah. stained yeah. and like gross. And does, he, he does a phenomenal jo- Job. He's hard, right. It's hard to turn, not to turn away. And it's, you know, hard if, to watch, hard to turn away at the it's same a tough time. Watch. Yeah. It, it,
2: it, who's better in this movie, Dustin Hoffman or John Voight? I, I think both are amazing. Both are amazing.
1: I don't know who, I don't know. Um, I do know that there is a yin and yang between their characters that sure. the Waldo Salt screenwriter really brought in. I mean, because if you didn't have that light, that um, inevitable glasses half full uh, character that Voight plays, this film would be unwatchable.
2: Oh, I totally agree, and it is very of mice and men. I'm reading a book right now called Blaze by Richard Bachman, so that's Stephen King's pen name, yeah. and it has some of these same themes: a larger guy that maybe isn't as bright, um, but is more cheery, and then you have kind of a smaller guy that is kind of the brains of the operation, but you know has is kind of darker and and has some real anger inside of him. And it's funny that these those that trope works really well in a vice obviously but it works really well here and it does feel unique here you don't feel like you're watching a retread at all
1: right right and you know before we go into this fred neil uh soundtrack thing a couple of characters i wanted to talk about in this um you know, Bill Balaban plays a young gay guy who's trying to, you know, the only He's way. He's the guy in the movie can, theater,
0: right? Is, is yeah, that yeah him? the only yep.
1: way you could get yeah. laid back then was to go to these movie theaters because the whole country was so far in the closet and homophobic, and it was really awful. You could actually be arrested for being homosexual back then. Right. Um, but, you know, Bill Balaban, his, is it Bond, is Billabon, it's Billaban, it's is Bill of Bond, Bill of I don't know. We say Vermont in Texas. So what do we know? Yeah. We know. <laughs> well, here we go. Um, Hampshire,
2: Yeah. Well, you know, we have accent issues here, too. But yeah, yeah. Bob Balibane, who's great in a lot of the Christopher Guest movies. Sure. He's he's a yes. uh, Warren Littlefield and Seinfeld. And he's very good in a small role here.
1: Well, and his family ran Hollywood. His he had his two uncles. Uh, one was the head of Paramount and one was the head of Metro Golden Mayor. That's fine. And, and uh, you know, deep, deep film uh roots, you know big uh you know Hollywood family, but I married into a um a big uh Los Angeles jewish family, which is couldn't be any opposite further from what I grew up in i'm sure and in in and, 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 and so um, I was having dinner with my father-in-law one night and he said, have you watched any good movies lately? I said, you know, I went back and watched midnight cowboy and I said, I just love that Harry Nielsen song. And he goes, that's not a Harry Nielsen song. And I said, yes, really? it is. And he goes, it's a Fred Neil song.
2: What? Yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll definitely get into the song in a bit. Uh, that's kind of the second half of the show. Okay. Um, but uh,
0: but that Bob, uh, so what character? Yeah, the, the uh, Bob, can't, can't, what's Bob his name? Bob Yeah. So it was hard to feel, like, figure out whether I felt bad for him or not. Because to a certain extent, I knew that he was so closeted, like, this was the way that he, he got interactions that he wanted to. But then he took advantage of Joe. Like, he had, was broke. Uh, yeah, but right. But how do you like? It's hard. It's hard to feel bad for someone when they when they do it like that. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, he should have paid the guy. Should have paid the uh, guy. You know, it, it was a business transaction. Yeah. Um, you know, so I didn't feel that bad for him. I was surprised yeah. at how nice Joe Buck, the character, was. Right. Totally. So many people who fucking ripped him off.
2: Well, he's so bad at it though. Like, he, you know, he never asked for the money in his bands. Like, he's just bad at this. At this. You know what he wants to do for a living. He just isn't. He's not a very good hustler. And in a lot of ways, it's just because he's too kind. Sure. Do you think he yeah.
0: killed that guy at the end? Um. The the guy that he picked up at. I don't know if it was like a carnival type of situation. He hit him with the phone, knocked his yeah. uh, his teeth out. Do you think I, he killed I, him?
2: I think. I I, I worry he did. What was that? Sorry. Do
1: Jessica? you think he killed him?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I actually, I hope he. I want to believe he did not. I do because I it kills. He did, though. It kill. It kind of kills a character for me a little bit.
1: But he, he does. acts like he killed him. He does like look in that face and his face is yeah. you know, silent movie level genius. Right. And uh, I mean, I hate to say it, but my God, he looks exactly like Angelia Jolie. I mean, in, in this movie, his face and, and her brother. Um, right. But uh, I don't know if I hate to say it, but he, he does. Uh, but uh, he, the the look on his face lends you to believe that he did, in fact, kill the guy for $57. Exactly. I,
0: I think you're right too and I sort of, I like, I have to kind of explain it away from a moral standpoint in my head for me to still like the character so I kind of, maybe I can just explain away a way that he was just too dumb to like figure out a different way i I don't know
2: i think you know this whole movie this the city you know i lived in new york for a few years and it can do this it can can really kick the shit out of you right and he's getting the shit kicked out of him the entire movie for two hours we're seeing him get and then finally he just he just has enough and unfortunately that guy is on the other end of it but i i think that hit what he does that guy is this pent up anger and frustration and sadness that he just you're he's right. Erupts. He's kind
0: of right. He's been beat down. Yeah. So, well, I don't even know. It's hard to tell how long he's in the city, like how long, because he's kind of in the same clothes the entire time. It's got to be weeks, I, I, I guess. I'd say months. Maybe months. Because the weather right.
2: turns. So well, for months. He's
1: showing washing his clothes at one point.
2: Yeah, I
0: guess yeah. that does happen. I think he's right? there
2: for months. So maybe, yeah. okay,
0: so he's he's freezing cold. He's starving. He's yeah. prostituting yeah. himself out. His right, friend just, is dying. His friend's dying over and over for months. Uh, yeah, I could see him snap and kill that guy.
2: So what do we yeah, think if, what, what do we think and, he had? Well, what did Rizzo have? Tuberculosis?
1: I think he has some kind of, yeah, it's got to be some kind of lung disease or something because he's coughing incessantly throughout the thing. And it's, you know, it sounds like a wet cough and he's uncomfortable yeah. and it makes the viewer uncomfortable. But, you know, I think, you know, I don't, this sounds kind of cliche, but I got to bring it up. So Times Square really is a character in this film. Yes. And, and you know, in a, in a different way than, say, New York is to a Woody Allen movie. Um, yes, very different. It's very much so. And it's very sleazy in... And I'm, I'm 54. I'm older. So I can remember, you know, I had I was lucky. I got a little survivor's guilt because my parents traveled with me when I was a kid. And so I remember seeing places like, uh, you know, Times Square in the 70s when I was a little kid. I remember seeing places like the French Quarter in New Orleans or Hayes hate Ashbury and stuff like that. And I was very young, Yeah, but uh, they are just to remind our listeners right now, it is like freaking Disneyland now.
2: Oh, it completely to- changed. I lived in New York. Uh, you know, my father worked in the city. So in the eighties, I'm 40. So in the eighties, I would go to New York, you know, when it was bad. I mean, I had, I, I had prostitutes, you know, proposition me when I was eight, you know, like, you know, yeah. it's just, it's just yeah. that it was just everywhere you went. It was just adult theaters. It was really, really rough. And this is, you know, 87, 88. So it was right. fun to see the city. And then I lived in New York from 2012 to 2016, when it was completely different. So it was fun yeah. to see a movie like Midnight Cowboy almost as like a time capsule of what it used to be like. And it, it, you, you forget, but you're absolutely right. It was definitely an entirely different place. Yeah, it really was.
0: Back to that Rizzo character just for a second. I think they were trying to make the parallel between him and his dad. Like he wanted to be so much different than his, he, he looked at like his dad had such a demeaning lifestyle a shoe shiner. as a shoe shiner, dying of a lung disease as well from, from breathing in um, that uh, the wax from the shoes all day. Yeah. And yet he died. Like he dies the same way that his dad did.
2: If even sadder way. And even Saturday, he's like half, right. He's half as old and he's alone.
0: Yeah, he's alone. He's, you know, he's, he's well, got... There's, late some, problems. there's a
1: little bit of solace, the fact that he did make it to Florida. Right, true. And, <laughs> yes. And, and, yes, and, yeah, he does. Uh, This is me looking on the right side, but... <laughs> yeah. but I think the interesting thing about um, him is that... Um, you know, when you take acting class um, or you study whatever it is, Meisner or whatever theory, they always talk about characters with limps. And this character that Dustin Hoffman plays actually has a real limp. Um, and but the great thing is, is they show him dreaming about Florida. And he and runs. Right. He, and he doesn't have the limp. Right. Yeah. And he's, and he's got this white suit on and he's shaved and he looks like a million, but he looks like the graduate. right? Um, anyway, I just thought that was great. I thought,
2: and to Hoffman, so how Hoffman got that limp was he put actual rocks in his shoes. Oh, did he? And I guess that helped make his foot kind of go fall asleep and kind of become numb. And he says, if you do it for, you know, put the rocks shoes for a couple hours, you don't, then the limp becomes natural. And You don't need to even need to think about doing the limp. You can just act out the rest of your part, and the limp will just come. Yeah, crazy
1: it, it, man.
0: It, it was a very awkward limp. It wasn't a limp like I'd kn- no. like I'd known no. before. So that that kind of explains it. Pretty cool, right? Yeah, because I saw well, that it, the limp kind of came from. You see his his foot is askew. That's how yeah. that's how it sort of manifests itself. I was like, oh, this is a very strange. Almost like he'd broken an ankle and it didn't set right, and so it was off, and then he's and off And he filter. really
2: deteriorates as the movie goes on. You mentioned, like, his teeth, and even his, like, skin color. Oh, and, like, sweating. when we first meet him, he's not in, you know, the same kind of condition that he is, you know, halfway through the movie, and then at the end, he's falling down a flight of stairs, he, he's going, you know, and obviously, then he dies. Yeah, right. But, how How is
0: John Voight's character, how is Joe... So he's like he's kind of he's a very prissy dude, right? Like he's he's so um it his look, uh how he smells, how you know, his presentation is so important to him, but yet he'll even wipe the sweat off of off of you know Rizzo's face with his clothing. I, I would be so disgusted, I don't know that I would be able to touch him.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well there you know, there's a very he knows that Rizzo is or Razzo rather Ratso, yeah. is all that he has. True. Yes. so uh this film reeks of desperation. The whole thing. Uh these people are stuck like Chuck, so to speak. And um, you know what when he's in that um filthy run down apartment, he's cooking yeah. that food and he puts oh. it in a cup and you're thinking, God, what is that? I mean um It's good, it's good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it's like yeah, that's rough. That is a rough that's a rough place that abandoned building they're in. There's no, yeah. key. it's just, uh, and I couldn't,
0: I, I started bar. My wife, Barbara was watching with me and I'm like, bar, I don't ever want to live. Let's, we can't ever live this way. Barbara, I oh, won't, I won't make it. You don't want to be homeless. I won't an abandoned building, Matt? No? <laughs> I, I, I um, won't make it big reach, Matt. The other part though, with, uh, with, uh, uh, with Joe is, I think I, I might be remembering this incorrectly, so you'll have to tell me, but it sounded like he was not able to be there for, for like, her or not. Um, he couldn't be there for his grandmother when she died. And it seemed like he wanted to make, he he was determined to be there for Rizzo to take care of him as he was dying in the way that he couldn't take care of his grandmother.
1: Did you get that from the film too? Anybody? Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, Schlesinger does a great job of kind of giving you a backstory on their baggage. And you can see that they bring all this stuff into it. Um, You know, it explains a lot of why they behave the way they behave when they get to the Warhol party. Yeah, um, you know, and and the people are like, "Hey, man, that stuff's for free." You know, yeah, you, don't have, to steal you don't have to steal it, right? To steal the food, um, but you know, those two characters in the Warhol party are Paul Morrissey and Ultraviolet. Who, um, th- so for the listeners. These two super hipster, black turtleneck, black leather jacket wearing uh, Warholian characters come in and start filming Joe Buck because he looks interesting. And then they give him a a, um, they give him a invitation to a party. Right. So it's interesting that Schlesinger said, hey, I'm going to throw this Warhol party into this film because it really breaks the monotony. Or not that it's monotony, but it breaks the pattern of the film up big time. What it, do you breaks the, it
2: breaks the depression up for sure, because think about where we are with these characters at this point. Now the weather's cold, they're stuck in this sure. place. It The movie starts to get really, really depressing. And at least this does kind of, like you mentioned, does kind of break up that monotony, at least that repetition. Um, and also allows them to meet the v- Brenda Vaccaro character, right. who is, um, I, I really like how she... I really love her performance here. She plays it very naturally. He's like, it's $20. And she's like, you know what? Fuck it. I want to get a lady. It's 20 bucks. And I think it's just a good, it's, she doesn't do too much with it. She's very authentic. Very and, easy. Yeah. And I really believe that, uh, I you know I believe that every scene that, you know, that, that next scene with her and Voight. Yeah. I really believe that chemistry they had and, and her honesty and his honesty too, which He's, you know, I, I think fighting. Maybe he is gay, you know. And there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of texture there, and they're both really good. Definitely, I and I think she she shows a lot of empathy
0: throughout yes. that scene, which is really nice to see. Um, but speaking of that, so Ebert, did you read Ebert's uh, um criticism of this film? He was very mm. critical of it.
1: No, uh, really?
0: Yeah, he was. He thought it, he he thought that the acting was brilliant and that the movie was a huge disappointment because of how they sort of filled in the gaps around it. And so things like that, uh, Warhol party, he was he was really like against, he thought that it was, it was just like a, a trope that a lot of people were using at the time and it allowed them to just fill you know, put in some more rock tunes for the soundtrack. Um, he, he didn't, he didn't like it at all. You didn't read the, I didn't no, yeah. It's a very
2: cynical take.
0: Yeah. And I was, I was a little bit surprised that, that he, he was so against this film.
2: I'm surprised he reviewed, the reason I didn't go, was he, was he a critic then?
0: I don't know, but I, I looked maybe back in maybe he, right. went, he went back for, the oh, for like the hundred. Because he was a
2: screenwriter in 1969, that's why I didn't even need to go back and read the review.
0: Yeah, it's linked to in the, even in the, we also
2: discovered
1: uh, John Prime. He discovered John Prime? Yes, he did. Oh, in fact, 1969, when this film came out, he went down to a folk uh, show in Chicago And he called up his editor the next morning and said, or that night, and said, hey, look, I know I don't write music reviews, but you've got to let me write a review of this guy. And he wrote the review of this guy, and it was about a guy who was at an open mic show, and they wouldn't let him off the stage. They're like, play another one, play another (laughs) one, play another one. And what happened was was Christofferson got a call from Steve Goodman. Steve Goodman was another songwriter who wrote city of new Orleans. He was also from Chicago and Steve Goodman called up Christopherson and said, Hey man, I know you're playing in town. There's this guy that Roger Ebert just wrote a review about. Let's go see him tonight. And they went and saw him and the rest is history. So anyway, (laughs) Roger Ebert and this all happened while midnight cowboy was, was, uh, was going on. But, I think for Roger Ebert to kind of be dismissive of the party is the same way that people are dismissive of um, things, parties, and things that Tarantino's showing. You know what I mean? Oh, like the Once Upon
2: a Time in Hollywood. That that, the Playboy Mansion scene is considered to be one of the weaker ones in that movie. Which I don't mind it. I, I don't mind it. I, I, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. I like he, it. He also didn't like the flashbacks
0: and sort of how they gave the backstory. The backstory there. His main criticism was these two people, Joe and and, Rat, and Rizzo Razzo, They have such chemistry um, that why don't we just why explore? We have- why, yeah. Why do we need all the other shit? Mm. Why don't we just explore that? That was his main
1: criticism.
2: Uh, anything else on the movie before we get into a bit about Jesse? I think that's uh, good. Or, yeah, I do want to talk about the
1: soundtrack because um, yeah. my, my wife's grandfather is a guy named Lester Seal. Who, and Lester Seal is the man in the Harry Nilsson documentary that walks into the bank in Los Angeles and says, you can quit your job now. I have three of your songs on the next Monkees record and it's going to sell millions of copies. And so Harry takes his coat off and his pen off puts it down and he walks out of the building with my wife's grandfather who's okay. Lester Seal and uh Lester Seal's son which is her father my father-in-law um they discovered Fred Neil uh, and who who wrote, who wrote the song right who wrote everybody's talking at me okay and this song is super important this song is so reoccurring. Totally. it is it is it reoccurs a dozen times throughout the film, like no song you've ever, like no, you know, um, license or soundtrack use you've ever heard. Um, in fact, uh, so anyway, it, 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 you, I was having dinner with my father-in-law one night and I said, yeah, I love that Harry Nielsen song. He goes, no, that's a Fred Neal song. That's funny. And, and if you think about what a genius songwriter Harry Nielsen is, That song was his biggest song and he didn't write it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, it's crazy. I want to actually play a little bit of it. So give me a second. the The funny thing about this song to me is like, this is his most like straight up folk tune. And so it kind of makes sense that he, at least for, I'm not, I got to say, to be honest, I'm not a huge, like, I don't know his catalog anywhere near probably as well as you do, Jesse. But yeah. but from the songs that I, the like the famous songs, the songs that I do know about him, like this is his kind of most straight up folk tune. And it makes sense that he didn't write it.
1: Yeah, it's almost it like the simplest does. tune. I mean, but he's got some folk songs, but, you know, my father-in-law told me, um, whose name's Chuck K. You can look up Chuck K. and Lester Seal. It's yeah. like, it'll blow your mind who they worked with, right? Right. And and, and But Fred Neal was this highly regarded folk singer uh, in that whole Dylan, you know, uh, ground zero scene. And the guy, and the reason why we don't know who Fred Neal is is because he never wanted to tour. Interesting. He. So- so yeah, he just made a ton of money off that one song, and
2: and he went like went to the Florida Keys and just kind of like hung out the rest of his life,
1: right? Yeah, so he got involved with like dolphins um, or something, yeah, ecology and saving the ocean and dolphins, and um, you know, I, I love those kind of stories because uh, it's just. It's just beautiful to me when something huge happens to somebody and they don't respond to it like 99.9 rest of the world does. Sure.
0: Yeah. Um, I really love this song, by the way. And I I think it's written really brilliantly, too. And I I wanted to usually on the show, I kind of break a couple things down. And so I did want to talk about a few parts of the song that that really mean a lot to me. Sure. Um, There's an intro. Uh, of the song that you don't hear on Spotify, but you do hear on the soundtrack to this album, and it really shows, like, sort of the w- one main theme for me, if themes uh, that comes up for the song for me. It's a, it's a traveling song. Like when sure. you you put you right, you put your headphones on, you close your eyes, and you feel like you're going somewhere. It's like a car trip. Wow. And one of the reasons why is because of how the sort of the rhythmic element of of the the picking guitar and banjo and the kit and the bass were sort of, uh, play to each other. So here is how it's stacked. Um, you'll hear what you'll hear first is the banjo start and then the guitar add onto that. And then the drum and the, and the uh, bass kick in now hear the guitar add, and then you'll hear the kit in the bass. Here we go. Right. And it just feels like you're moving. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and so the cool thing is like you, you wouldn't necessarily hear how all those elements are kind of broke down if you hear just the Spotify version of this, but it, it, it really illustrates it for you when you really listen like to this that. version. Yeah, it's neat, right? I love it. Yeah.
1: You know, during that time, um, okay, there's strings in that song. That oh, I was going to bring that up too.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: These beautiful strings. So that song was very 70s. I mean... Um, you know glenn campbell um so many songwriters back then had these kind of, john hartford had a song that was very similar to that um uh it, it's this it was, it's what the seventies were going to be for like the next five years. It's a precursor Yeah. Um, where you basically, you find these folk singers and they come in and they play, you know, the first half of the song is just like, Oh my God, if you go back and listen to that song, it's hard to believe it's just a voice and a guitar. Yeah. Well, halfway through the song, there's usually this amazing string part that comes in. Um, and that's what they were doing. They were going to, you know, ground zero, New York, McDougal street, going to the folk clubs. And then they, they take them into the studio and they started off raw. And that's really what that song really does. It builds and it's got this, like you said, it's got this great traveling vibe. Totally. To
0: it. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So you br- you bring up the strings. I, uh, the other thing about, um, about N- Nilsson is is his vocal prowess he's a he's a fantastic singer and w- and also very smart about it too like i love if you listen it's hard I love this song, but it's not like I know it very well. I've never covered it or anything. But if you try to sing along with it, it's kind of difficult to do because of where he places the rhythm of his voice. It's very unique. Um, he sort of delays a lot. He's kind of on the on the backside of the beat, the beat a lot. But another thing he does with the strings at the end of the song, he follows the string line. The string goes up, whoop, and hits this high note. He falsettos up to it, and then you hear the strings fall off down, and then you hear his voice fall off down. And I'll play it for you. <laughs> Isn't that cool? He just follows right with that strength. So
1: neat. Very Harry Nielsen. And, and 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 just to be, you know, this song was, you know, "Gentle on My Mind," which was written by John Harford. It has the exact same vibe as this song.
0: Yeah, similar. And
1: it came out a couple of years before, so everybody was kind of like, "Well, I'm going to write my version of that," and that's what. People do, you know, they speak their truth, they write their truth. And if you go back and listen to Gentle on My Mind, it's the same thing, man. It's got Glenn Campbell really slipping in and out of his falsetto, his range. He's got the rambling banjo, which gives it the traveling feel. Yeah. Um, That train beat, you know, if you will.
0: A lot of the other two tune, uh, tunes that I like um, from Nielsen are are like he does a lot of stacked vocal harmonies and things that are really cool and complicated. And this yeah. one, it's not so much that, but he, I think he does an excellent double job in a lot of this too. like really right. It's harder to do with the recording equipment that they had at the time and, st- and make it sound right. He doubles himself pretty amazingly here. I,
1: I really like. No, it. Let's, let's be let's be honest the reason why they did that back then is because they had more talent and they had to step up. uh, (laughs) Right. No pro tools. (laughs) I mean, if you, if you go to a pop concert and you see a guy on the side of the uh, thing with a Mac board, um, they're not doing that uh, naturally. And, and, and that's why, you know, some say that Nielsen became the fifth Beatle um, because Lennon and McCartney and, and Brian Wilson, Um, Brian Wilson was another one that my wife's grandfather and her and my father-in-law worked with
0: yeah
1: Um, they were amazed at Nielsen's ability to go in and fill in a guitar lead with his voice just by improvising and that's what you can hear him going, wow wow he's kind of changing you know he's changing the tone it's it's otherworldly that song is brilliant
0: yeah he has he has severe prowess he's really he's really talented he, he's one he's, of my
1: favorites
2: he, from that from the era from that early 70s yeah. era harry nielsen is just jump into the fire coconut gotta get up i mean the songs are just they even sound modern today in a they weird do. way like he, yeah. he is he i i, I really love <laughs> his music um and i love this
1: song too this is a fantastic song
0: i was gonna ask you jesse is this your favorite nielsen song or, or which which one is
1: I mean, it is. I like one is the loneliest number that's used in P.T. Anderson's uh, Magnolia film. Yeah. Uh, Amy, Amy Mann does a beautiful version of that. Matt um, knows that song well. It, yeah, I do. Actually, I don't think Nielsen, I don't know. If, yeah, he wrote that, but it became a hit. Three for, Dog rock, three uh, dog, dog. Yeah. Um, but I think that's my favorite uh, Nielsen song, uh, but I this is my favorite Nielsen vocal
0: here I'm gonna. I'll play you my favorite song and vocal. Oh yeah. Song kills me. Just kills oh, yeah.
1: me. It's got the madman across the water. Elton John. Oh yeah. Oh, section. So good. Yeah, good.
0: Yeah, that's song that It's amazing. so lush. His vocal performance is amazing. It's so delicate and powerful at the same time. It's he's he and to me he's never better than on that song. I, that song kills me. I love it. Yeah.
1: Yeah great stuff
2: man. this is a to, to kind of spin back to the movie real quick it, yeah this song is almost a character in the movie it's used so like jesse was saying it's used so often kind of like the graduate it's it, kind of a similar yeah, feel to it, it. yeah it's it, but it right exactly it's funny that dustin hoffman's in these two movies that exactly, yep. these iconic songs um but uh, yeah the, the song you almost feel like it's almost i don't know it's almost like a third member of that group of him and and uh voight and uh hoffman in the song
0: i think you're right yeah, it's very important. What? The movie would be totally different if it, war- if it weren't in here. The
2: location in that song are almost like breathing characters. And they even so it's the movie starts
0: with it, too. And yes. he's in, it avoids like strutting, almost like Saturday Night Fever strutting down the street. And this but it's yeah. but it's a totally different feel because it's not like a cocky. It's, it's sort of an optimistic, you know, I'm I'm traveling. I'm I'm becoming something different type of feel to it. But it's kind of the same kind of a parallel scene almost.
1: Well, there's an interesting thing, too, besides this movie, and I think that I'm not sure you guys can, I'm sure your listeners or definitely you guys will correct me on this, but there is some reoccurring harmonica song that happens, um, and it was done by this guy named Toots Thielman, um, who I think was... French, or I think it was a French guy, but anyway, he plays one of those chromatic harmonicas, which yeah. is the opposite of blues and country. It's uh it's like it's like an all key piano sure. type harmonica, and he plays this reoccurring theme um, in it. And I don't even know that the song that there's a name of the song, but I've heard Tarantino use this in a few of his movies.
0: Yeah, I remember it, but I, I'm not sure what it was, and I I didn't look closely enough at the soundtrack to see, you know, to, to try to identify a
1: name it. Name for it?
0: Yeah, but there there is some neat use of of music throughout, and that that's definitely one of them. Um, yeah. And it's a totally different sound than a you know than a, when you listen to a harmonica. Mostly, it's in a particular key, or it's you know it's blues, maybe maybe has a flat seven on there or whatever. But but you know that has a particular sound where a chromatic. Um, yeah, harmonica sounds, sounds more completely like a,
1: an accordion, yeah. or a piano, but it's blowing.
0: Yeah, totally. Um,
1: but you know, that was a big thing back then too. those harmonica sounds. There was a guy named Charlie McCoy from Nashville who did a lot of soundtrack stuff too. In um, Sam, um, in, uh, what's our wild man outlaw? Um, uh, Sam, who's the filmmaker? Come on guys. Oh, Sam Peckinpah, he, he, he did a lot of stuff for those Peckinpah yeah, um, huh? films, and uh, I don't know, there's something cool about that harmonica, the way they use it in the 70s, because in the 40s, 50s, and, and the 30s, or whatever, it was like, okay, this means we're out on the range with our horses. <laughs> right, right. Well, that was Peck a horse, and Paul, you know what Peckinpah
2: was trying to do, that show, the real West, the violent, you know, the wild bunch, those movies, yeah. trying to show, like, this is no, guys, this is what it's really like, it was fucking ugly. Yeah. And he's even yes. going to like fuck with the song element of it as well to kind of show yeah. you that just like the Midnight Cowboy. Yeah. This is what the city is really like. It's gritty. It's nasty. <laughs> no fucking chew you out.
0: It's not the glam and parties that you're no. used to seeing. Right. Right. In pop no. culture. Absolutely. I, it's funny. a Harmonica is a, we- is a weird instrument. I've like two that we, we were talking about. We don't have to get into it, but we, uh, we were talking about uh, if I ever lose my faith in you by sting was on our last episode. And that has yeah. a really neat harmonica comp where he's just, he sounds like yeah, a guitar. It's like, bump. Bump, bump! is happening. The other thing is, um, originally, do you, I don't know if you listen to Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, but uh, I, I've, yeah. I've seen them in concert a few times. The one time, uh, normally they don't. Their original, one of their original members was a harmonica player, but he was only there for like the first album, and then it moved on to a horn player. But I got to see him at like at this this Christmas show ten years ago, and they the um, the harmonica player sat in, and he was the most phenomenal. I'm not a huge harmonica fan, but he was so good virtuistic on that on that instrument that it, it completely changed my mind harmonica from now on and i it's it's kind of like the recorder you can be an amazing musician on the recorder too if you I you love know I, that harmonica.
1: I, I got to play with willie nelson and i got to work with uh, mickey Raphael yeah of course we know played all the great harmonica on all those records and mickey Raphael love uh, this toots guy from this movie toots Thielen who played harmonica in midnight cowboy, but look, but you know, for the listeners, Google him, check him out because it will really put you in a different place. The vibe of that. Yeah. That.
2: Jesse, uh, this is Jesse. I don't know if you want to talk about his album. Yeah.
0: I want to talk about that next. Um, So yeah. So you're a musician. You're releasing an EP. It's not released yet, right? That's coming up here pretty soon. I-
2: no, it comes out next Friday. Yeah, we'll so be out when we hear this because this episode's coming out the twenty fifth.
0: Okay, right, 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 right. So by the time
1: oh, it comes out the day before,
0: right? Okay, tell yeah. So tell, uh, I got to check out some of your music. Um, when uh, I don't know if it was your wife or or management sent it sent it over. And, more,
1: same thing. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Um, and it's really fun. Like I, uh, you play You're the guitarist on that album, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, You're I played everything on that record, actually. Yeah. I played all the instruments on Did you on that really? Record. Yeah. Oh, wow, yeah. that's impressive. And, and, uh, but, you know, for the listeners who don't know me, I, I'm originally from the Texas-Louisiana border. Um, I started out playing, uh, like, Zydeco and country music. I recorded with, you know, a lot of people, Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, yeah. um, Willie Nelson, Glenn Campbell, Ray Price. I mean, And then, uh, you know, um, my inner punk rock, um, Joe Strummer, um, kind of saved saved me from listening to bad uh, metal ballads, you know what I mean? Totally. And, uh, And so I got involved with them, and I, you know, filled in for Billy Zoom from X, and played with John Doe, played with the Super Suckers, toured extensively with Social Distortion, and... So I've had a real weird career, you you know,
0: even on the EP, you can tell there's a bunch of stylistic stuff there. There's like, you, you definitely have influences from kind of all over the place. Like there is definitely some Zydeco feel on some of the stuff. There's some, some I, uh, what I would like, I'm not as well versed in this, but in sort of uh, East Texas type of music, there's definitely some Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff in there. And I got, the other thing I got to say is I love your guitar tone. It's phenomenal.
1: Well, thanks, man. Uh, This record is not normally what I do. I mean, most of the stuff I do is more geared towards like an Americana country type thing that has this kind of punk attitude, energy um, to it. But I wanted to um, do this love letter to I-10, Interstate 10. So from Beaumont, Texas, all the way to New Orleans is Cajun country. Yeah. And it kind of ends in Beaumont and anybody in Lafayette or – author or like Charles will tell you that's kind of where the cutoff is um so all this music that I grew up around uh listening to blues stars like Lazy Lester and Slim Harpo and all this stuff on Accello records and all that kind of stuff it was um it's all kind of a love letter to that and the New Orleans 50s and 60s records yeah. um that, you know there's some songs that had the full-on fats Domino piano boogie woogie Professor Longhair type stuff that I I attempted to uh, to uh, give that vibe. I'm by no means in, in their league, but um, but you know you do what you do, and um, it, it'll be a great little bridge record to come out for my audience while we're the whole world's on hold and. Sure. Uh, we're all making the dolphins happy right now. So, you have, you,
0: have you just recorded this during COVID? Is this just a, like a few well, months of you now, working on? it? What this?
1: happened was, is I recorded it on a friend of mine's back porch with a bunch of old gear. Yeah, man. I saw
0: I saw that in like liner notes or something. Yeah,
1: and then I found it, and I was like, "Wow, this shit sounds really cool!" Like, yeah. so I took it in since you know we had the COVID thing going on. I took it into a friend of mine's studio, and we mixed it, and then put it out. But it's like a house party record, you know? I mean, I've got some songs on my other records that are political. I've got a song that did really well about uh, Charlottesville. Um, And um, there's some equal, I mean, some, um, you know, some race-oriented, equal rights, political songs. There's none of that on this record. Yeah, it's just more of a fun,
0: it's a fun record, yeah. Party
1: record. It is a house party it is like, let's stay in the house. It's like we used to have these hurricane parties when I was a kid. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, my they'd be at my parents' house, and they would board up the house, and all these neighbors would come over, and they'd make this huge thing of punch, and they'd be playing Zydeco music. People would be smoking cigarettes in the house,
2: and <laughs> yeah. people would be
1: getting drunk. and and just talking shit and dancing to Zydeco and the hurricane yeah. going on outside. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, this like, fun. is kind of that record, you know?
0: So uh, there are a few things that struck me uh, that I wanted to ask you about. One is, are you really playing like 250 shows a year? That's crazy, dude.
1: Well, I was, I was playing uh, a lot. Um, what happened was is I, After I played with a lot of the legends and stuff like that, I got a solo record deal. I put out this record in the nineties and went to number one on the Americana charts. I went out, I was just touring all the time. And then I met Rob Zombie.
0: Yeah, I saw that. And I wanted that, to ask you
1: about, like, this. Hor- that's such an interesting
0: twist in your life to do horror soundtracks. So
1: weird. It's so weird, man. And it's not <laughs> anything that I would have ever thought about. I mean, of course, I'm a film <laughs> geek, but I met Rob, and Rob said, hey, I'm making the ultimate white trash horror movie called <laughs> the Devil's Rejects, yeah. and we think your music would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, and so I made this record called Banjo and Sullivan, and then I did part of the soundtrack, Um and it you know it did really well for me, and um you know, and then then I did Halloween with him, and he yeah. put me in he put me in Halloween too um as a character, and then um I did some more stuff for his animated film. And I had done a lot of stuff uh, while a lot of my friends were in Nashville trying to get like their big uh, number one billboard country cover as songwriters. um, I was in Los Angeles and I was getting songs placed in film and television. Yeah, licensing, yeah. And I owned all of my own publishing. Oh, nice. Um, so I had like over 45 songs in film and TV and that's when, back when they had a budget. Yeah. Um, so my friends were swinging for the fences and I was kind of getting these really good bunts, you know, but I was getting them like a few times a month. So it was, it was pretty awesome and, you know, helped my stability and, and so it kind of gave me some freedom. And then I left you know, the record label and started my own thing. And then I met Rob and then I got in this film thing and, you know, doing these soundtracks and, you know, the interesting thing, we did that one film with uh, Harvey Weinstein, who was an asshole back then too. Um, obviously we all know, but, um, you know, the cool thing about Rob is is that they didn't realize that while Marty Scorsese might be the finest American director, it's, it's debatable. He, he's never sold 20 million rock and roll records. Well, that's true. So, so Rob Zombie has, yeah, and Rob Zombie retained the rights to those soundtracks and Lionsgate and uh, Miramax, Miramax and people like that. They didn't get any of that because they're like, Oh yeah, a little soundtrack. We don't care about that. Rob killed it. I'm sure. Oh yeah, and uh, and Rob taught me more. He taught me so much about business and and just you know he's just a brilliant guy. And a lot of people use that word genius so loosely these days, you know. But Rob is in fact like this empire guy that. Very, you know, you can be just a filmmaker and be great at it, and God bless you. You can be just a rock star and be great right. at it. You can be just an animator. You can be just a screenwriter. I and mean, Rob truly is all of those things, and whether you like him or not, he has found a massive audience that will they will walk through fire to watch whatever he he puts out. You know, so, absolutely,
0: yeah, one hundred percent.
1: I want to a- a- I wanted
0: to ask you, like, is there one? placement that you're really proud of? Like something that you got into that you were, you're like, you just, you just feel like a, like a huge victory for you or,
1: or, or one. Yeah. Just some, one that you're really proud of. Well, I was a big true blood fan. Yeah. Um, even though it was campy and it was obviously made for a kind of a television series type thing. Um, but you know, I had a few songs in that and, uh, I had, uh, you know, there was some stuff. Sons of Anarchy, Justified. Yeah. Um, um, I don't know. You know, so many of them. But uh, the True Blood thing was a big deal for me because all these Cajun relatives of mine watched True Blood. <laughs> right, of course, right. Right. Did. And uh, you know, I was always the weirdo kid growing <laughs> yeah. up. I just did not fit in. You know, I was. I wasn't as. I wasn't as weird as Joe Buck, but I felt like <laughs> that. You know what I mean? Totally. Um but it was kind of cool when they all said, Hey baby, we heard your song in you know what I mean? It was like, okay. You know, <laughs> that was my little my little own piece of private Idaho, you know.
0: Yeah, you now your family knows you made it. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh so the name of your EP is Gulf Coast Sessions, right?
1: Gulf Coast Sessions. Um, and tell Roland, say Roland, how like
0: how people can get it and what's the best way for people to be in touch with you. Is it,
1: yeah, let us know. If you go to rollinstone.com when this airs um, and put in Jesse Dayton, um, the new video that I directed will be out. I um, also directed a short documentary film on the filming of uh, the the record. Uh, that'll be out but just go to um just look up jesse dayton online i'm on instagram facebook twitter all that stuff sure. and it'll you can get the record you know that way i'm on a label called blue alon a yep. record which is out of los angeles um but i would say you know check out the video on rolling stone on their website. Um, it's a really cool video. Um, I hate watching myself, and okay. I actually like this video, so that says a lot.
0: We'll put a link in the show notes, too. Absolutely, and totally, uh, you know, we'll, we'll tweet it out and stuff, too, so we'll share it through our social hey channels. as well so We'll see it. Absolutely. Um, any other well, do it. thoughts or questions? Thanks so
1: much for coming on. Jesse, you,
0: appreciate it. Yeah, you you were great. and uh, no, man, thanks I, so much. I loved it,
1: man, and I, you know, I just... It feels good. You know, I'm lost over here in this music thing most of the time. So it's kind of good to uh, reconnect with some fellow film geeks like who I can, you can, uh, there's no layer too deep boys to get, you (laughs) know what I mean? Like you guys went pretty hard and deep, you know? So I appreciate it.
2: Absolutely. That's
0: (laughs) what what we do best. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll catch you on the next one. Thanks Jesse.